From BU Cares Research Center, this is Dr. Michelle Lamb and Dr. Jacqueline Kirk, and you're listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, the Research Connection Podcast. It's a podcast about the world we live in and how education can make a difference. These are conversations about curiosity and how researchers and educators are working in new ways. Each month on the show, we bring together a community member and a researcher to discuss a topic that's important to them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leaning In and Speaking Out, the Research Connection podcast. Um, I'm here today with researchers from Roots and Routes, Rural Homelessness, uh, to talk about rural homelessness in Manitoba. Um, My name is Jackie Kirk, and I am in the Department of Leadership and Educational Administration in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University. I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast. Um, My partner co-host is Michelle Lamb. um, And... Michelle today was part of the study. She was one of the researchers on the study. So um, I will be asking the questions and trying to facilitate the discussion. I'm just going to turn it over to all of you to introduce yourselves and maybe explain what your role was in the project. Candy, do you want to start? Hi, I'm uh, Candy Jones, and uh, I was the principal investigator for the research study. Um, basically, uh, uh, I was working with Jan Marie Graham and Michelle Lamb, um, both uh, researchers at Brandon University as well. And the research was funded through uh, Brandon Neighborhood Renewal Corporation and BU Cares here at Brandon University. Yeah, sorry to interrupt there, Candy. I just want to make sure that we can clarify the funding. So the funding was part of Reaching Home, Canada's homelessness strategy stream of funding, and that's provided by the Government of Canada, and BNRC is the facilitator of that funding. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going with your with your introduction there. And uh, so a little bit about me. I'm uh, an associate professor here at Brandon University. I work in the uh, Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy. I'm uh, the chair of the department. And um, my research interests are largely in the area of mathematics education and teacher <laughs> identity um, and rural homelessness. Uh, rural education is a passion of mine. And so uh, I came to this study with um, Michelle from BU Cares and also Jan Marie from the Department of Health Studies. So uh, that's uh, where we started uh, through uh, a grant that was provided by Brandon Neighborhood Renewal Corporation. Excellent. Michelle? Yeah, I'm Michelle Lamb. I'm, I normally say I'm the co-host of the podcast, but today I'm, I'm wearing my other hat as a researcher. Uh, so I was one of three members of the research team. Candy already introduced us. Um, and this was a new a new area for me. I grew up rural and one of the things we'll probably talk about later is how rural places didn't always recognize that homelessness exists. Mm. And so I was probably like that when I was growing up too. I didn't really think that much about homelessness. I didn't see it very much in my community, although it was there. I just hadn't learned to recognize it. And so growing up rural, I think influenced me in wanting to take on this project and to raise awareness that homelessness does exist in rural places. It does matter. We do need to work to address it and to raise people's consciousness that this exists in their communities. And and so it, it was a great project to be part of. And I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Thank you. Flo. Hi. Uh, my name is Florence Halkro. I'm the Ask Anti Coordinator. Um, I was asked to join this research um, uh, to give my input on homelessness um, as I was a big part of the COVID um, isolation units. And I was able to see firsthand on the homelessness and trying to help them firsthand on. Uh, getting out of homelessness and giving them the resources while all the other resources were closed. It's great to have you here with us today. Um, It's important to our discussion to have people that are working in the community with this type of research. It's really um, 
it makes a big difference to how we understand the issues. Will you just start by telling us a bit about the study and how it was conducted and maybe talk about um, why you called it Roots and Routes? Um, well, the original study we were going to look at was going to look at uh, interagency collaboration in rural places. Um, and we were going to hold focus groups in rural communities. Um, we we're going to try and find a, a rural communities to pull organizations like education, healthcare, uh, the justice system, uh, CFS, like different organizations together to talk about how uh, they might work together to address homelessness within local communities. However, um, COVID hit right at that time. And uh, so we revamped the study actually a couple different times and ended up speaking with, uh, trying to find people <laughs> um, within a pandemic to speak with that had experienced homelessness that were either from rural contexts or were living in rural contexts. So um, in the end, we managed to find five participants that we could interview. Um, there were others, but it didn't work out uh, to meet up with them, their life circumstances changed. And so probably out of about 10 contacts, we ended up interviewing five. And they were from, um, three of them were in Brandon, two of them were in rural context, but all of them had roots with rural um, rural contexts, I would say. So they, were, they either came from rural contexts in their earlier years, or they were living currently in rural contexts. Um, and so we we were looking at some of the routes, routes, I guess, <laughs> um, to um, both homelessness and sort of in in amongst and out of rural communities as well. Mm -hmm. So the routes had to do with um, their background experiences and the local context in which they had found themselves. And the routes had to do with their mobility to and from rural communities. Do you think it was significant um, in their experience that they were rural? Yes. <laughs> A simple answer, I think, yes. The rural places had factors that didn't affect them as much in urban places. So if you're escaping domestic violence in a rural place, everyone knows where you live. And so moving to Brandon or moving to an urban place might mean you feel safer because no one knows where you are. But there's other factors like there's no public transportation. How do you get there? Or there's like like that woman that you were talking about, about having cancer. Like you can't always just pick up and move because of other factors. Maybe there's children, maybe there's other things. And so the factors of rural places, like no public transportation, like that small town environment, we had one participant who would say things like, in the coffee shop, everyone talks about me. And that means that everyone knows all the things I've done that were bad since I was a kid. And so he can't get a job because everyone knows he was formerly incarcerated. And like those small town environments can really be difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. But the small town environments can also really support people. We had a participant who said, when he goes into a small town, he knows I can mow this neighbor's lawn and they'll give me a meal or I'll find this church and they'll have a potluck or things like that, that were kind of small town hospitality too. So I think the context really mattered a lot. Yeah. Right. And for good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine just from my own experience of yeah. growing up and moving to the city, it was quite a, like it was a really challenging experience for me to come from my parents' farm and move into a city yeah. and coming as a result of homelessness to move to Brandon um, must be really significant for people as well. But without the resources that I had to. You didn't have an adjust. auntie to ask. I didn't have an auntie to ask. <laughs> exactly. But just yeah. so many of their connections would be in their rural homes. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, another thing that came out, we also interviewed, uh, aside from the five participants who had experienced themselves uh, or were experiencing homelessness, we interviewed two community coordinators, one of which was you, Flo. Um, and I can't remember if it was you or the other community coordinator <laughs> who said that one of the things that um, 
might be at play in terms of people's awareness is the fact that people who are experiencing hard times or they're experiencing domestic violence, they actually um, may leave the community. And therefore, that's one of the reasons why it might be less visible Mm -hmm. to people in the community. Because of course, if you have an abusive partner and you have to leave uh, that abusive partner and you leave the community, then it's likely that the community members don't know uh, that that necessarily happened or even what happened to you or that you were experiencing, you know, difficult times for whatever reason. So um, that was one of the things that that came from the community coordinators who had sort of a broader view than the participants, uh, the five participants themselves, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, living on uh, like the reserve, like the First Nations, um, it's like small town feeling mm-hmm. where you know where your resources are, you know, where... Uh, who to talk to, whether it's regarding housing or uh, education. So, like, the band offices have all those, those things. So, it was like a one-stop shop. <laughs> so, you didn't have to go to City Hall for this. You didn't have to go to, like, 7th Street for this. It was always in one one place. So, that's why the Ask Auntie has the navigation portion where we can navigate them to those resources in the community, especially when they come from uh, rural communities or First Nations. or um, So they have a one-stop shop. But they may have to go somewhere else, but if they ask us where it is, we can navigate them to those resources. Yeah. And it's a personal connection, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know them too. And so I remember one participant saying he went to a, uh, I think it was a doctor's appointment, but it was in the big city. And I think he was in Calgary. And he said he went to the appointment. They asked him all the information, wrote it all down. And then he went back for a follow-up appointment and they had to start over again because they didn't remember him. And that feeling of like not being known, right? So this one-stop shop kind of model and that rural community feeling it matters to people. Like he said, you know, they don't care because they don't remember anything about me. And the opposite can be really helpful, I think. And for him, I think it was a re-traumatization because it was mental health that he was dealing with Mm -hmm. um, and grief and loss. And so every time he met with a new healthcare professional, he had to reiterate everything over again, Mm -hmm. um, which was re-traumatizing to say the least, yeah. So talk about what you learned from the study that um, might have implications for how we could address issues of rural homelessness. Well, I'll just, I'll review just kind of the basic findings um, just to give a sense of what we, what we found. Um, One of the things we found was sort of a split between uh, systemic barriers that exist in rural contexts and then personal factors and challenges that were unique to the individual. So the systemic barriers included things like just an overall invisibility or denial of rural homelessness, um, a lack of housing availability, affordability, quality and safety, um, services and supports not being available in rural communities, um, and, and sometimes they weren't available and sometimes people just didn't know how to access them. Um, lack of employment opportunities, including things like stigma. Once, once people got a bad name in a small town, it was difficult to find employment, for example. Uh, limited health care access within rural communities, including finding family doctors and in particular mental health uh, and addictions treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, educational barriers. Um, the the people in the study were much less likely to finish high school. Uh, ADHD and other learning uh, difficulties were prevalent. Um, and, and messages that people got from key leaders and teachers within the school system sometimes worked against um, their well-being. Um, and then, of course, the justice system as well, um, gaps upon exiting, uh, they'd be released into rural communities uh, with no, no plan for where they would live or, or how they would uh, move forward. And then in terms of personal factors and challenges, things like financial issues like debt, uh, finding money to get into an apartment, like finding the rent their first month and last month, the deposit, starting the utilities. Um, and I think before we were talking about identification, right? Even having identification came up. Um, 
individual uh, trauma, abuse, and violence were evident in all of the stories, including physical abuse, sexual abuse, child apprehension, theft, break-ins. One of the participants was held at knife point, for example, in front of her children. Uh, grief and loss and caregiving responsibilities as well and health, overall health of individuals, everything from cancer uh, to brain traumatic brain injuries to mental health issues, substance use disorders. Um, all of the people that we interviewed were dealing with significant health issues. Um, and each of them were unique to the individuals, but overall um, strikingly similar in many ways in that health was a a barrier to um, to their well-being and their ability to to maintain uh, housing, for example, amongst other things. Was health a cause as well as a symptom? I would say both. In yeah. in the case of many of the participants, I mean, obviously, um, I don't think we could say that uh, a cancer diagnosis would be caused by homelessness, but it certainly isn't helped uh, when housing is precarious or when housing has mold in it, for example, or uh, when somebody's unable to heal from a cancer surgery because of the living conditions that they're in. Um, you know, and many of the other mental health, especially uh, in addictions, we found it was like it was a chicken and the egg. What, what comes first? Um, do, do issues with housing and employment come before mental health or does mental health precede that? It mm -hmm. could be either way around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you have something you'd like to add? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I just... <laughs> One of the things that I really enjoyed about reading the, the transcripts and listening to the interviews um, was the creativity that people displayed in, in counteracting their situations. So they, some of them really thought outside the box in how to make life work. Like living in a camping nearby someone who's willing to share electricity or um, living in a camper. Yeah, living in a camper or um, making friends with someone that you know will be able to provide access to something. And just the, the way that people were, it was inspiring in the way that they could creatively come up with things just to kind of make it work. And so, yeah, our that. second participant who um, had uh, purposely chosen uh, employment on the road because mm -hmm. housing was covered while he was away from home or yeah. away from his yeah. community. So for four um, days at a time. Yeah. Time. So then he would come home for, you know, a few days and stay with somebody, buy them some whatever cigarettes and beer and sleep on their couch. And that was that was a way of having a place to stay all the time um and and having his his people around uh, at the same time so he he talked about that in both positive and negative ways right mm -hmm. how in some ways he was very creative in in making that happen but on the other hand um it wasn't always the most healthy situation for him right or the people he was staying with mm -hmm. yeah I think, like when it comes to like uh like their creativity and stuff mm -hmm. Uh, one enrolled, like I don't know, one enrolled into Brandon University <laughs> really? and stayed in the dorms. Yeah, and did a computer course yeah. and waited for COVID to lift. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but that's a good but example, I mean, like, right? But, it's just yeah. an example of their creativity, like, mm -hmm. um, uh, or some people would move to like another community and then they would take uh, courses and stuff, but um. There's some that like treatment centers and things like that. Like there was like people found creative ways to um, take care of themselves. And then some would like, I'm not saying like to just use the systems. I'm saying like they would use the systems to get out of homelessness. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of people, I watched a lot of people succeed. Like, you know, um, it was the success that they received trying to get out of their homelessness mm -hmm. like going to university mm -hmm. like that's something to be proud of mm -hmm. um going to treatment sobering up and then getting a home after that like these they once they had the, the care 
and they had the resources again. <laughs> they were able to um, go through the systems that they needed mm -hmm. and be successful. Um, I, I don't know. You could But the Brandon Neighborhood Renewal Corporation has like two social enterprises. So one is uh, Brandon Energy Efficiency Program, which is a carpentry training program. And the other one is Fresh Start Specialty Cleaning. So Fresh Start, it's a casual job where they could work. And then they're able to work there and on a casual basis. And it's on a list, like a rotating list, where they don't have to work full time. So people with ADHD or people with other, like they can't find a sitter on this day or whatever the case may be, it fits the gaps where they're able to be part of a working force as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's the specialty cleaning program. The carpentry training program, um, where like I was in the carpentry training program, lived experience, <laughs> which is a was which is a great program for people because it's like when you're coming out of homelessness and you need a place to feel like you belong or you need a place to get on your feet. They help you get your IDs. They help you get your grade 12. They help you get your license, like fill in the barriers that could help you get another job after they're done their first part of their training, but they also have apprenticeship where you can carry on. Mm -hmm. So using like the provincial and the federal um, funding, we can guide them through and get them right through to the apprenticeship. I've seen, um, so I've been with the NRC for 10 years uh, come February. And I've seen uh, so many people get their red seal and getting their apprenticeship. Like, so um, it's a very successful program. And then building homes. I've received a home through step-to-step -step program, steps to end poverty permanently. Um, so I bought a home. And it's like those kind of things that you, like I never dreamed I would ever be able to purchase my own home. And then coming to a community that has these, all these resources to get rid of the barriers without judgment mm -hmm. and without criticizing the person that's trying to, it's like giving them a hand up, not a handout, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, that's what I find. Uh, it's not just the homelessness portion that we try to focus on. We try to focus on what's the next step? Where can we get to, like, how can we get them to the next step? And then, like, working on the, the homes and stuff like that, too. What are the next steps? Like, what did your research show? Um, what were the implications? Where should we be going? Um, I think a large part of it, um, we were looking at the things that kind of worked, particularly in Brandon, and thinking about some of the ways that that could be extended to rural communities. Um we we thought about ways that things like Seventh Street Access and the Brandon Friendship Center and Ask Auntie, for example, could could exist in small communities because they don't have the the bigger structure of something like BNRC. So um, we're still interested in looking at how agencies within smaller communities could uh, collaborate to try to meet. Uh, needs locally or how municipalities might be able to kind of uh, gather uh, some of the resources that would be needed into a more central place for people um, and ways that that people could be connected to to various organizations uh, through uh, through people within rural contexts. So that's something we're still interested in looking at. Um, I understand that you are also part flow of a uh, uh, a rural um, homelessness strategy uh, within Manitoba. So um, I'm not sure what your thoughts are in, in, in terms of what could be next steps. Um, well, I've been in different communities and um, I think like take the same model as the Ask Anti program, like where it's, you could ask anything you want. <laughs> And then, uh, but it's, it's not just the program itself. Like it, it took like 10 years to build up these, these uh, networking with everything in our community. Like, so it's not, so like being in BNRC in 10, for 10 years, 
it took me a long time to get the networking's going because sometimes people aren't open to joining like a network, right? People, there's other programs that are like, no, we can't sign this contract with you <laughs> or we can't go on to your certain hypers database and stuff like that um, because they have their own database. So there's different reasons why they can't join. Um, but once you get the networking going, it's like you can solve so many issues that people have because you're connecting from one resource to another. So you're connecting to like Manitoba housing, we're connecting to the health system, we're connecting, we're, we're connected to so like all the resources in our community. And it took a long time to get there. And we're not fully there yet, but we're more than halfway getting all the resources together. And that's how I think it should be in rural communities. Um, but you need the support of the leaders as well. It's not just the resources. It starts at the top and it branches out. And because you have the homeless population working together, like even though people don't see it, they're surviving together in a community and they're working together and they're teaching each other. And like, so if we can meet in the middle, then I think we could accomplish a lot more in helping because they're willing to work with us as long as we're willing to work with them. Mm -hmm. So I think that would work in every community. I'm curious too, um, like a very small community, do you do you think something like Ask Auntie could work in a very small, yeah. like a community of a thousand people? How how could how do you think that could could look? Have you looked at Yes, um, because we we're working on other communities already. Um, I've just come from up north. Um, can you see the town? <laughs> <laughs> you can. Yeah, you can. So we were in Nepal, Manitoba, and we were working with the Friendship Center there, and also working with the NRC. And they have the homeless population, like the homeless shelter there, and. We start connecting those two together. Like mm -hmm. you guys have to like work together. <laughs> and then we start making them reach out to the health. Like their seventh street, our seventh street access is public health and in the so so they started working with them and now they're having like harm reduction. Now they're mm -hmm. having uh, harm reduction clinics, they're having ID bank days, they're having like all these different resources that we have in Ask Auntie, but in a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it's, again, the stigma. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard to get rid of that stigma when it comes to a smaller community, because you said like the coffee shop and, you know, people know who, who's who. And, um, but there's a lot of stigma, like, especially like racism as well. Mm -hmm. There's racism in every community. Um, but to get rid of that racism is a battle in itself, right? So if somebody comes up and they're experiencing, like, some people get mixed up. <laughs> Sorry. There's some people that look for jobs and are judged as a homeless person because of the way they look. But once we get rid of that stigma and the racism, I think we could accomplish a lot more. And it's every community is capable of doing it, you know, dropping down the barriers and let's work together, like working together. Brandon, I've seen since I first moved here 10 years ago to now, like we have with Truth and Reconciliation coming up and the walks and seeing the community coming together and getting rid, getting rid of the stigma. We have people in the homeless um, shelter that have jobs mm -hmm. so you know like um and there's some that weren't homeless and, <laughs> and they couldn't get jobs because of the racism or just stigma mm -hmm. they were just stigmatized um so i think i think every community is capable of doing it once they get rid of the racism you'll never get rid of the racism i have to put that out there first mm -hmm. of all but um to help people understand the you know the indigenous ways or uh, whatever ways like it's not just the indigenous uh, population like it's a higher mm -hmm. you have that in our community it's a higher number 
um, that it's indigenous, like I think it was like 80% were indigenous that were homeless. Um, but there's also those other ones that we have to take care of their needs too, right? Like, like we have to work together. Working together is a big thing. <laughs> and I hope I answered your question. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things I really love about the Ask Auntie program or these kind of one-stop shop models where you can ask anything and there's no judgment, I feel like it takes, it, it puts care into a system that doesn't always feel caring right? Like the systems that say like, sorry, we only have this mandate, you have to go over there. And sorry, the next appointment isn't until next Tuesday. And you have to drive to another community for it or like the the personal care and personal touch are so often lacking. And I feel like for what you're doing, Flo, and for what our participants talked about in some of the more one-stop shop models that they accessed, it feels caring. And I feel like that's so critical and we miss that sometimes when we just look at the larger pieces. But you're a kind of policy systems thinking person. So maybe I'm wrong, Jackie. Your eyebrows went up. Okay. I think you're absolutely right. Okay. <laughs> we need to make the systems personal. Yeah. Right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Because um, that's what's going to help them succeed in our community. Like, to know that people care, mm -hmm. to let them know that there's hope. Mm -hmm. And when you go to a place where there's security in the front, <laughs> that's not welcoming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially when there's people coming out of incarceration. <laughs> do you yeah. think they're going to want to go there? Exactly. You know, like, yeah. and uh, that's like this. When they come out of incarceration, some of them go straight to homelessness because they're exactly like, mm -hmm. who, who cares, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, but once you get like somebody going into beep after they come out of incarceration or the sober living or like all these resources that we have in our community, we catch them as soon as they come out. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they have a bigger chance of succeeding mm -hmm. and, and not entering homelessness as soon as they come out. Um, we have the um, Joshua Jacks building. I've seen one girl come out of incarceration and went straight to sober living because she wanted to stay sober. She was scared to go back to drinking as soon as she came out. And then some the there was other resources. We worked together to somebody got her as soon as she came out. She was able to apply for Joshua Jacks. We found a rent subsidy to tie her over until she got into EIA because it takes a while to get an appointment. But as soon as she got out, we were able to subsidize her um, rent, like to pay for a portion of her rent until she got onto EIA. And yeah, so, and there's a lot of success stories and there's a lot of like even um, people getting their children back from CFS. They're in homelessness. And how are you supposed to fill that gap of finding funding between taking care of yourself at the moment and then getting your children back and then wait a month and a half for your family allowance to kick in and you can't get money for your for your place that you need for you and your children mm -hmm. until your children are in your home. Mm -hmm. But CMS won't give you your kids <laughs> back because you don't have funding for, mm -hmm. for that um, portion. So there's a lot of a lot of things that happen. Yeah. Those gaps where the systems rub against each other or they don't make sense when you put them together, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. we have like some rent smart uh, rent assist. We have um, some mental things that are able to help people, but there's so much paperwork. Like <laughs> the <laughs> applications are like six pages long and asking for your income statement from last year. And then you have to phone, you know, it is, there's your, always one gap after another. Your bank statements. That was the one we heard about where yeah. you had to print off your bank statements. Well, I mean, if, if you don't have a place to live, how are you going to have a printer to print off your bank statements or the $10 a statement that the bank wants in order to print them off for you? Even like, a dollar, like yeah. even $1 for each page that they, like, you know, like it's hard to come up with that or that $30 for your, your first piece of ID. Cause everything is free after like, well, some cases, 
everything is free after like your once you get your thirty dollar birth certificate. Um, your medical card is free, but you need a picture ID. But in order to get a picture ID, you mm. need ten more dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who's getting thirty dollars every two weeks from social assistance, how are they supposed to survive? Well, we had somebody in the research project that had they had found a job, they were ready to go, and then they needed a child abuse registry form. And that was like, what, $45 or something. And that was enough of a barrier that she wasn't able to work. Mm. Even though like things like that, like seem like the barrier is so small from zero to two, (laughs) you know, like once she started working in that job, she would have had that $45, but that $45 was not in her pocket at that moment. And so Stuff like that. And that's where yeah. like the Ask Anti program comes in. Is so like the like so there's a lot of um, indigenous organizations, or there's you know like we don't have them in Brandon right now. I know we might be getting one in the in the future, um, but there's also like the um, ISETS funding that's in every First Nation, and if they're indigenous, they could reach out to those organizations to. Mm-hmm help them pay for like mm-hmm. little gaps like that mm-hmm. you know and then that's why when it comes to first nations people to fill those gaps they if you're in the paw there's uh Cree nation tribal health if you need to go to winnipeg for a trip like you know if you if you need to go to winnipeg for medical there's um there's the band office right across the river uh you could go there and ask them for if you're from first nation that first nation you can ask them to get your birth certificate through membership. Like that's what I mean. It's a one-stop shop. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important to have Ask Anti mm-hmm. programs or similar to Ask Anti programs in the, mm-hmm. every community because then you can ask them for to fill those gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder about were, non-Indigenous people. Non-Indigenous people. Um, so we have funding through the Reaching Home to fill those little gaps. Mm-hmm. So we took all these different little findings <laughs> and we have them yeah. right at hand just yeah. to try and fill those gaps that mm-hmm. they're, they're facing, um, especially well, big families too. Right? Yeah. And it yeah. seems like a lot of knowledge, like gaps in funding, but also knowledge of where those pitfalls are, right? Or how to even begin. Like, I don't know that I would know what to do. I don't know where I would go. Yeah. That service navigation piece is so critical. Yeah. And that's the thing like to work together. Like, so if you didn't know, you'd be able to come and ask us, like Mm -hmm. not, not just for the the indigenous people, but it's organizations come and ask us questions too. Like, Mm -hmm. like, and then we try to fill those, those gaps, like, Mm -hmm. because we have a lot of knowledge on what's available in the first nations for our first nations people. It sounds like the system navigation part, like the systemic barriers and overcoming those is a large part of what you do. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's really good to have you here and have this conversation. Um, And because I think about policy, I keep thinking we need to be looking at what our bigger policies are, right? Because I think the people that are developing the policies that are meant to support aren't intending to leave gaps, but I think they don't have, they're not wearing that lens. They're not, you know, the policies are small, right? So then people are getting stuck in between them rather than understanding that we need to have it also have an overarching policy that is sort of like the, watershed maybe because mm-hmm. every individual is different right mm-hmm. so that one policy is not going to work for mm-hmm. 30 of them mm-hmm. right because everybody's different once we look at each individual's needs then we we fill those gaps as they come through so mm-hmm. yeah i see it happening all the time like uh with the different resources because everyone has different policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of the people are like, well, it's easier to go ask auntie than it is to go to seven different offices and 
you know. Um, but we also have the Hypers database that helps us too. Mm-hmm. Um, when everyone's on, who's ever working with the Hypers database, will know what that person's needs are mm-hmm. because they're they're put on through the PI spadets, mm-hmm. the vulnerable index um, database. Mm-hmm. So we are able to see what they need or who or where they already got the resources. So we try to fill those gaps through through the database as well. Yeah, I think two years ago, well, maybe longer, pre-pandemic, we had your former executive director, Carly, Carly um, Gasparini. Gasparini, thank you. She came on the podcast and talked to us about housing in Brandon. Yeah. And she mentioned the HIFAS database as, as a really helpful tool for like once you tell your story once, you don't have to keep telling it over and over. And it's now yes. in that database. And yeah. And they have it in different communities too. That's why I say like the hypers database with the Ask Anti program mm-hmm. to fill in like uh, to help the homelessness and then to spread out and work with the, all the networking, mm-hmm. like networking with other resources mm-hmm. like Manitoba Housing. And mm-hmm. well, we were able to house four elderly homeless people when we hit the pandemic mm-hmm. and those ones are still housed to the state mm-hmm. because we were able to communicate with Manitoba housing mm-hmm. and they they rapid while they were able to we filled out their applications while they were in isolation mm-hmm. and then they were able to get housed and then they're still housed to the state mm-hmm. yeah. excellent any of you were you surprised by any of the results in the research I think um, one of the things that surprised us um, when we were originally recruiting, uh, trying to find people in rural rural places who uh, had experienced homelessness, we were uh, contacting organizations and a lot of the organizations said, we don't have that problem here. We don't have homelessness in our community. And of, co- of course they do. They just didn't um, see it as homelessness because it wasn't what they thought it would look like. So they didn't consider things like, you know, precarious housing or couch surfing, for example, um, as as individuals who are experiencing homelessness. I think the word itself has a bit of a stigma associated with it. And people were less willing to identify identify that within their own communities. That's one thing that we noticed for sure. Yeah, this might be revealing some of my own ignorance in coming into a project like this, but I was surprised at the layers and layers and layers of trauma and grief that people were carrying in their everyday lives. And I know that that exists like that. It wasn't surprising that it exists, but just seeing the progression as they were telling their stories, I felt like this person that we're interviewing could be anyone I know. It could be me. It could be my family members. And the responses to those things are the same way I would respond in those circumstances, the same way anyone would respond. And so I felt not surprised. That's not the right word, but really, really moved by that. Like, hmm. I would have made those exact same decisions or I I could have gone down that exact same path or people that I love could have gone down that same path. And it's not like there's this big divide between people that are experiencing homelessness and people that aren't. It's just life circumstances that have wound them into that corner. (laughs) And that really hit me hard when we were doing this study. Mm -hmm. I deal with a lot of the community too. Mm -hmm. So I see both sides like, Mm -hmm. um, people who never experienced homelessness and mm-hmm. and the uh, ignorance of um like mm-hmm. let's send them back to where they came from or they choose to be homeless mm-hmm. they choose that way of life and yeah. that's not true yeah like there's if they had the same um upbringing or the same resources that others have that are not homeless I don't think we would have as much homelessness as we do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's hurtful to see like people aging out of CFS going right into homelessness mm-hmm. because they don't have families to teach them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen one, um, this one slogan where this young boy was, um, my foster parents were, he said, my foster parents were not paid to love me. 
So that's like that really hit home because like I have the experience as well uh, in foster like the foster care system and also being homeless at, at one point. Um, and it's really hard to get out of it. You have to have a lot of support and you have to have um, the will to move past it. And that's what we try to give at the Ask Auntie and at the Blue Door Project, that hope that um, anybody could change um, as long as they have the resources and the right people to give them that hope that they need. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about Ask Auntie and the Blue Door Project? Uh, the, yeah, the Ask Auntie program is like an Indigenous navigation advocacy and outreach program uh, that we run under the Brandon Neighborhood Renewal Corporation. Um, it came out um, during COVID. We noticed that a lot of people were um, were having hard times finding the resources. Um, so we, um, the executive director at the time, said that he, like he heard of a program in Toronto called um, Call Auntie. But I said, our people can't call us because they don't have phones. <laughs> so we need to either get them a phone and then call it Call Auntie, or we could um, call it Ask Auntie so they could ask us any question. And it's, it's for Indigenous, like it's not just Indigenous, but based on not having Indigenous services in, the, in our community in Brandon at this point, um, where they could just ask questions about like, um, non-insured health benefits, uh, status cards, SCIS cards, and um, any Indigenous resource that they need. Uh, some people inquire about Jordan's principle for children and stuff like that too. So um, until we can get um, more more organized Indigenous organizations in the community of Brandon, um, we're the only organization that can uh, that are willing to assist that can assist with it because we have the knowledge and other experience from um, going through those systems. Uh, and the Blue Door Project is uh, like a drop-in center. Um, it's not just for homelessness. It's not just for homeless people. Um, I, we started running it last year on December 1st because we, the people in the community needed a place to warm up. So we started a coffee lounge at... Uh, uh, can't remember. <laughs> we started a coffee lounge on uh, 9th Street. And, and as for anybody that needs a place to warm up, like in the wintertime, there's even children that come in there with their parents. And, you know, at least they have a place to warm up and it's close to the bus terminal. So they can wait for their bus there. Um, or they come and have hot coffee, hot chocolate, tea. Um, and then for the ones that are using the Samaritan house or anybody who needs a place to shower, uh, need clean clothes. Uh, we have laundry facility, a laundry facility there. Um, like for people that can't find a place to do laundry because there's other resources. Like we're not trying to um, copy other resources. We're just trying to fill the gaps in the systems that people have. So. Yeah, that's what the blue door is. <laughs> Thank you. Um, is your experience that you said that Ask Auntie came out of the pandemic, kind of? Um, is your experience that homelessness increased with the pandemic? Yes. And then would you say that that trend has continued, that there's more need now, or is it sort of leveled off again? Um, I say it has increased since the beginning of the pandemic because a lot of um, people aged out of CFS uh -huh. and we have seen so many young girls age out of CFS right when the pandemic started mm -hmm. and they were released um, uh, through the pandemic. And it was like they had no IDs, um, they had no, they weren't on social assistance, so they had nowhere to go. So that's how we were able to see like the, the increase in, in uh, homelessness and then working with them firsthand on a day-to-day -day basis for the first year. The, the first participant that we interviewed um, 
she was uh, dealing with a cancer diagnosis uh, and was in between systems when the pandemic hit, so lost her job uh, because everything shut down. Um, also, uh, so was on uh, unemployment insurance, uh, but then ran out of weeks on unemployment insurance, tried to get the COVID relief, couldn't because she was on unemployment insurance, tried to get uh, social assistance and was told she couldn't because she was in the unemployment insurance system. And so she was in this gray area between all the different benefits that could have been accessed and, and able to access none. Uh, and at the time of the interview, she was indicating that she was like on the verge of losing her apartment and right. She had been um, sharing an apartment with three people uh, in order to, to maintain a place to live in Brandon had moved from a rural area into Brandon due to cancer treatment and mold conditions that were in her house in rural Manitoba. And so, um, yeah, it was the, the way the pandemic uh, disproportionately hit uh, some people was really evident in her story at the time. Uh, we really noticed that in her story. Is there anything else that any of you would like to add before we close? I think this was a, a great research and I love that I was part of this and I appreciate you guys for inviting me to be part of this um, podcast and the research and um, it, it also opened my eyes too that you know there are people out there that are willing to work with us and and we could accomplish a lot more as we work together thank you your perspective is so helpful um, because you're right in there with people working every single day and we appreciate so much your work with with this particular group of people um, that you work with every day and also your willingness to speak speak with us um, as we sort of engage in a study to help with uh, BNRC with their goals in terms of rural homelessness as well. So thank you for all of your insights. It's so helpful. Thank you. You've been listening